you're faced right now with the same challenge that other examinees face when they get a question and they're like, wait a minute, all of these look wrong. Welcome once again to the Think Like the Test podcast. I'm Ben Caldwell. With me again is Carrie Wieda. Hi, everyone. And Carrie, I've got a different kind of question for you to start things out today. This is an episode that I'm sort of tentatively calling, what if they're wrong? And so my question for you, if a question on a license exam is keyed incorrectly, which sometimes happens just because of you know human error, even when there are multiple people involved, or it's written in a way that all of the answers are factually incorrect, how would you as an examinee ever know that? Oh my, I, thank you for introducing, like unlocking a new fear now. I never, <laughs> that did not occur to me as a possibility, but now I will be racked with that anxiety as I go through the test. Um, how would I know? Oh my gosh, I don't, I would, I'm sure I would default to, I must be wrong. I must have this wrong. Um, how does one find out? Well, I think that your response is a pretty common response, right? If you come across a question on the test where you're like, wait a minute, none of these are right. They all have a problem with them. There's an immediate anxiety that comes up with that, right? And then you start thinking, okay, if this is on the test, I there must be something that I am misreading. There must be something that I am doing wrong which I've got to tell you is a helpful instinct. Like that should tell you, wait a minute, let me focus in on the question at hand. Let me focus just on the information that's here and see whether I can suss out really what it is that they're aiming for here. You know, maybe I did misread it the first time or misinterpret something. So that's not necessarily an unhealthy instinct. But if the question really is, written in some way that's that's broken, that's flawed. How would an exam developer find out about that? I I would imagine that um, they would probably have to be clued in by uh, everybody getting it wrong. Yeah, they look at their data, right? They would yeah. see how is this item actually performing? Right. And if the item is underperforming, that will lead an item to get flagged on the developer side and they'll review it and hopefully they will catch whatever problems exist. The challenge for developers is that you kind of have to bat a thousand because if a problematic question gets through to the point where it becomes a scored item, well, then now you've got a problematic question that is impacting whether people pass or fail on a high stakes exam. And just because people are people, we all make mistakes, that has to happen sometimes. Once in a while, a problematic question is going to get through. The responsible thing for exam developers and licensing boards to do in that circumstance, once they discover the problem, and sometimes you know, people who have taken the exam, they'll fill out a survey afterward and they'll say, hey, on question 63, I think that's wrong. Um, so sometimes people learn about it that way, but a lot of the time it comes from looking at data. When an exam developer or licensing board figures that out, hey, we've got a question on this test that's actually really a problem because it is arguable or something has changed in the field or different practitioners, different scholars have different ideas about this. 
they should correct the error. Right. I mean, that's just an ethical and a moral thing. It's also part of the uh, AERA standards for testing that all these exams say that they abide by. And yet I I don't know that I have ever heard of a time where that's happened, where a developer through licensing boards has gone back to examinees and said, hey, we're sorry, uh, we screwed up. There was an item here that was miskeyed or an item that was problematic. And when we went back and took a look at it, we realized that other people should have gotten credit for a correct answer, or the item should have been thrown out entirely. And given that these are relatively long exams, it's not that that kind of an error would necessarily impact a huge number of people. It might be that it impacted you know, a handful of people. But I'm just not aware, and maybe it's happened without my awareness, I'm just not aware of that happening. I mean, it's not something I've ever heard of, but I feel like that would be the only right thing to do. Like you would you'd think you'd have to go back and like notify those people who maybe who's who just missed the the passing cutoff because they, you know, got this this wrong question. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree that that would be the right thing to do. And listen, maybe it's happening and I just don't know about it. Maybe the pre-testing process works so well that this is such a rare occurrence that it only happens once every X number of years. All of that is lead in to the question I'm going to put in front of you. Here's the thing. You're faced right now with the same challenge that other examinees face when they get a question and they're like, wait a minute. All of these look wrong. So I'm curious to hear what your thought process is going to be on this one. Oh, God. Okay. During an initial session, a client tells the counselor that she is currently seeing another counselor. She expresses angry feelings toward the other counselor and would like to get another perspective on her problems. What action should the counselor take? And by the way, this question comes from the current BBS exam handbook for the LPCC law and ethics exam. Option A, contract a set number of sessions with the client before sending her back to her current counselor. Option B, inform the client that she needs to terminate her ongoing therapy before the counselor can provide treatment. Option C, see the client until she makes up her mind which counselor she wants to have for therapy. Or option D, call the current counselor to inform him about the client's desire to change counselors. Oh, wow. Oh, my right? goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. I'm, I mean, I, I am so sure, like, I know that, like, uh, most therapists absolutely think that, like, you can really only have one therapist at a time. Um, if, if, you, if you have a client who's working with two therapists, um, you know, on the same stuff, like not, you know, a, uh, your, your regular therapist that you've had for a while. And then you go do, um, EMDR for a second. Like I, mm -hmm. I know I've, I've heard that that's pretty okay, but yeah, and there are some clients who might be seeing like one therapist to address substance use issues mm -hmm. and another therapist for a relational issue or some other kind of an issue. And, you know, you you typically would coordinate care, I would think, in that instance. But I don't think that's particularly unusual. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that what I've definitely heard about people being kind of uncomfortable with, therapists being uncomfortable with, is, uh, you know, when a client is seeing two therapists for the same thing and the, um, you know, clinical 
kind of thinking of why that's bad is that, you know, the client may be getting very conflicting um, input from each therapist and then the therapeutic process could be more confusing than, than helpful, um, which makes sense to me, but I can't for the life of me remember if that's an ethical guideline. I'm not, I can't remember. Well, you're, you're thinking so far is spot on, right? So if you have a client who is seeing two clinicians at the same time for the same thing, then even with everybody coming in with the best of intentions, the counseling or the therapy could be working at cross purposes. The client could get confused because you've got you know one clinician telling me to do one thing and another clinician telling me to do something different. When the you know client is seeing one clinician for individual therapy, their clinician might be telling them, you need to stand up for yourself. You need to have boundaries. You need to find happiness. And they might also be going to a couple therapist who's telling them something completely the opposite of that, saying that you need to let down your guard. You need to figure out the right balance of what's going to be in your interests versus what's in the relationship's best interest or the partner's best interest. And so you can have treatment that is directly contradicting the other treatment. And so, yeah, that's a clinical problem, right? That's sort of the conceptual reason why we try to avoid working with multiple clinicians on the same stuff at the same time. Which, I mean, makes sense. I just honestly cannot, I cannot remember reading anything that's like, this is not allowed. Um, Well, to be fair too, you're also, you're an MFT or you're on the MFT path and this is a counselor law and ethics exam. So this is making reference to the ACA code of ethics to which you as an MFT would not be bound. Sure. So I'm going to be pretty forgiving here if you uh, miss the mark on this one. Great. Great. Thank you. Although it it does strike me as being like, I, that I can't imagine that the codes are so different. Um, but maybe they are, um, Okay, so let's take a look. Are any of these are any of these just completely obviously wrong? Let's see. Contract a set number of sessions with the client before sending her back to her current counselor. Uh, I don't. I don't think that that's out of hand wrong. So okay. Um, B is inform the client that she needs to terminate her ongoing therapy before the counselor can provide treatment. Uh, I would say that that's correct if in if in the ethical code it really does say that it is unethical to provide treatment uh, when you know the cl- the client is seeing another therapist for the same thing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna hold on to that one um, for now. C see the client until she makes up her mind which counselor she wants to have for therapy. Oh my gosh! I mean, like personally. Personally, I would do that. Uh, I, I think like I could make a lot of clinical justifications for why that might be okay, um, particularly if she, you know, she's expressed angry feelings towards the other counselor. Um, if it's, you know, if there's any hint of it being a, a damaging relationship with that counselor or a, 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 you know, abusive relationship with that counselor, um I think I could come up with a million clinical reasons why she might need support as she disentangles herself from that therapeutic relationship. But again, <laughs> that could just be me putting into this what I would do. Um, so maybe it's not what I sh- what I should do. Uh, and D, call the current counselor to inform him about the client's desire to change counselors. 
But I do think D is wrong. I think D is straight up wrong. Call okay. the current counselor to inform him about the client's desire to change counselors. Um, that is not what the client told me, according to this question. The question says, during an initial session, a client tells the counselor that she is currently seeing another counselor. She expresses angry feelings toward the other counselor and would like to get another perspective on her problems. But nowhere in there is she saying, I have made the decision to change counselors and I you know, need your help doing it. Um, so I think that would be absolutely, you know, not okay. Um, particularly if there's no release signed, then that's a breach of confident confidentiality for, for the me as a clinician to call the other clinician. So I've decided D is, is not right. Um, okay. okay. So what action should the counselor take? should the counselor take oh my goodness um i i don't think a can be the answer either um a contract a set number of sessions with the client before sending her back to her current counselor um i, I don't think like how would you decide how many sessions is appropriate um I like then, I like your thinking here and like the the codes of ethics they don't tend to get that specific right they don't say yeah. if you're in this circumstance then you can't do any more than four sessions right that would be right. unusually particular <laughs> yeah. for a code of ethics <laughs> right okay so I'm gonna say not that one okay um, not a so I'm down to B or C if 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 it's in the code that only you can only see one therapist at a time otherwise the client the the therapist um, is is performing an unethical intake or whatever, then B, you have to inform the client that she needs to terminate ongoing therapy. Full stop. But if it's if it's not in the ethical code that that's what you're supposed to do, um, I think I don't I don't think that I think you could inform the client that that you don't feel comfortable doing therapy. Um. No, no. But now I've talked myself out of C. I had talked myself into C, and now I'm talking myself out of it. Well, I'm not going to tell you which way the standard goes, but I will tell you that there is a specific standard in the ACA Code of Ethics that addresses a client who is being concurrently seen by another clinician. Okay, then I'm going to say B. I would do C. I'd see the client until she makes up her mind because clinically, I think I would want to offer that support. Um, and I think it would be unethical not to. Uh, but I'll say B. I'm going to put myself back on camera here so that you can see the air quotes when I say that B is the correct oh, answer. Okay, great. Okay, great. <laughs> is it it's really? also It's also not the correct answer. So B is the correct answer according to the current BBS exam handbook. It says that the right answer here would be to inform the client that she needs to choose, that she can't be in uh, concurrent treatment. Yeah. But if you look at the actual standard at issue, if you go to the ACA Code of Ethics, here's what it says. The standard refers to clients served by others, and I'm just going to quote it directly. When counselors learn that their clients are in a professional relationship with other mental health professionals, 
which seems to be exactly what's happening in this question, right? Mm -hmm. They request a release from the clients to inform the other professionals and strive to establish positive and collaborative professional relationships. That's the entire standard. There is nothing, not one word in there that says when you have a client who's being seen by somebody else that you can't see them. There is not one word in there that says that a client in the situation described here would need to terminate their existing treatment before they can come to see you. This is a question that is in the current handbook that is flat wrong. That's not okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm happy I got it right, but <laughs> that's not okay. How, yeah. Okay, wait. Does has somebody has somebody told the BBS this? Has somebody like shared this information? Has somebody been Caldwell shared this information? I, here's the thing. By the time that this episode makes it out to publication. Yes, Ben Caldwell will have told the BBS, hey, this is not right. And we're going to see what they do about that. And who knows, maybe I'll even append something on at the end of this about what response I get from them. But this has been in their handbook for quite some time. And nobody's changed it yet. I don't know whether anybody's called it out or whether anybody's even noticed. I don't know how much attention people tend to pay to the sample questions that are at the very back of the exam handbook that a lot of examinees don't ever bother to download. So maybe nobody's noticed, but I do think this is a useful example of a couple of things. Number one, the people who write these items are human and sometimes they make mistakes. Sometimes bad items get through. That's not meant as an indictment of anyone. There's no such thing as a perfect process. But the right thing to do once an item is discovered to be problematic is to repair it. And if it's gotten through as a scored item on an exam, to repair any harm that has been caused by that being a scored item. The second thing is really a test-taking strategy for you as an examinee where, yes, there might be a question where every response is less than ideal, where you can pick apart issues with every single response, and in fact, where the question itself might be a busted question. You still have to do the best you can on that question, and it still makes sense to do what you did, to read through it carefully, to say, okay, am I am I missing something here? What's the question aiming for, even if they don't get at it quite as precisely as I might like them to, right? You still have to deal with the question that's in front of you. And then you can gripe about the question afterward when you're filling out the survey or whatever. And you should, if there's a question that you genuinely think is problematic, you should call that out so that the exam developers have a chance to take a look at it. But when you're in the exam itself, there's nothing you can do. You can't like put your hand up and ask for somebody to come to you the way you can in a, in a mm-hmm. class in grad school. You do the best you can with the question in front of you. You try your best to come up with what will be the quote unquote right answer. And then you move on to the next one. Because if you get all wrapped up in, wait a minute, what the hell? Mm -hmm. That's going to ruin your mindset for the rest of the exam. And that's the last thing that you want. I absolutely can see how I, I, I will start spiraling now. Every time I am confused about a question, I will start thinking, wait, wait. Maybe this question is wrong, but I think that's very good advice. Uh, there's no way for me to know. 
and it almost doesn't really matter. They're not going to change the test for me in the middle of my test. So, uh, yeah. So you just got to like do the best you can and, uh, and push forward. So, Ooh, all right. Well, that was, that was different. That was exciting. So what you're saying is that previously you would not have started spiraling on a question like this. Now you will start spiraling. That's not a good outcome. But I think now you're also saying you'll be able to stop yourself from spiraling. So I have created and yeah. solved a problem for you all in one episode. Yeah, exactly. You're a master. Well done. <laughs> I don't I don't know that this works in your favor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I genuinely believe I think that I think this introduces a new option into the spiral. Uh, I think there's absolutely, um, as we've seen in previous episodes, opportunities where I thoroughly spiral, but I'm more questioning how much I really know. Uh, now I'm, you know, questioning did I did I interpret that correctly? Did I read that right? This is introducing a new a new part of the spiral, which is maybe I do know my stuff and the test is wrong. Uh, but you're right. The the result, the resolution has to be the same. At some point, I have to stop spiraling and answer the question and move on to the next one. That's right. And what I'm hoping for out of this episode for everybody who's listening is what you were talking about, about that validation piece. If you read through a question and you're like, this is a terrible question. I think one way that people can spiral sometimes is, wait a minute, the test is what it is. So it must be something wrong with me. Oh gosh, what's wrong with me? What am I doing wrong? Have I missed stuff on other questions too? And that can really ruin your day. Yes. What I'm saying is if you read a question and you're like, this is a messed up question. And maybe even, I think I know what they're going for, but they didn't get at it very well. You actually have pretty good instincts and you can trust your judgment. Obviously read carefully, make sure that you didn't miss something in the question. Right. But if you come across a question, you're like, this is a stupid question. Don't spiral and think, oh gosh, what's wrong with me that I'm thinking that? It might actually be a stupid question. Yeah. So you do the best you can with it and go to the next one because that's the best you can do. Yeah, that, that makes me feel better. It does. If you would like more tools to help you get through busted questions on your actual exam, check out our programs at bencaldwelllabs.com. Until next time, on behalf of Carrie Weta, I'm Ben Caldwell. We'll see you later. <laughs>